Like, people only do things because they get paid. And that's just really sad. This place is like somebody's memory of a town. The memory's fading. It's like there was never anything here but jungle. Stop saying shit like that. It's unprofessional. Is that what I'm going for here? I want you to stop saying odd shit like you smell a psychosphere or you're in someone's faded memory of a town. Just stop. I'm given how long it's taken for me to reconcile my nature. I can't figure out to go on your account, Marty. Sleep last night? I don't sleep. I just dream. Bra-pa-ding-wa. Bra-pa-ding-wa. Cash me outside. I'm my own grandpa. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you chase bank windows smashing screedlers. Can you believe that this is already the 15th episode? I know. I am freaking the fuck out. If you're new to the podcast, my name is Staff Only. I am the studio manager here. I am also a socialist. Burn the state to the ground. LOL this week on the podcast, because I've decided that I am a socialist, we are not allowing any sponsors. Capitalism is theft. I'm not going to sit here and tell you to eat delicious Jimmy John's or to see a reboot of a classic film about a clown named Pennywise. No. I cannot be bought. Property is theft. Anyways. This week on the podcast we have a very special guest. His name is Paul John and he is the founder of the independent publishing imprint Endless Editions. If you've ever been to an art book fair, you will recognize him. He is a top-notch boy. A real prince of prints. Now, I'm just going to give you a heads up right off the bat so that you can chill the fuck out already. I didn't let your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney, use the studio this week because I wanted him to understand that all reality is fiction. As a result, he and Paul John recorded outside of the studio. The audio is going to sound slightly lower in quality. But you can just deal with it. It's not like you pay to listen to this thing. While the audio might not be like absolute velvet this week, the interview is pure uncut velvet. It is actually fucking phenomenal and Paul John is like one of the greatest guests ever. He is very thoughtful and I think that I am in love with him. His story is really neato. I just couldn't get enough of it and I think that you should buy all of his books. Let's just do the damn thing. Okay? So, Paul John, hello, PJ, Mr. Carney, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Yeah, you having a good week? Uh, I just moved studios, so not really. Oh, well, where'd you move from and to? Well, we finished our. Resume. Every time I talk to you, you're moving. I know. You're fuck. Where did you just move from and where to? Shit, man! It feels like I've moved everywhere, but we just moved out of Newark. Okay, move the Rizzo stuff. We had a studio there for about three years. 
And so it was just three years of us being like, yeah, we'll get around to fixing that machine. Yeah, we'll get around to, to reorganizing our inventory. Yeah, we'll get around to this. And then they were like, you need to be gone in six days. Shit. And I was like, gulp. Where did you move to? Well, fortunately, uh, and in, just after the book fair we did uh, in May, I was kind of annoying the Elizabeth Foundation to set us up with a different room. Oh, you have the new... Okay, so, so the for the... the room has absorbed yeah. whatever I've decided to keep, but we threw out like two-thirds of the studio. No shit. Yeah, we gave away and threw out a lot of stuff. Yeah, so for the listeners who aren't familiar, um, PJ's talking about the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts. They've got the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop contained therein, and uh, you run the Rizzo studio out of there, yes. and you just sort of upgraded and got a new room, which I saw a little bit ago. Yeah, did you come by and see I did, it? yeah. Oh, okay, cool. I, I came through and I saw the new the new spot and it's it's a little more luxurious and you were in kind of like a little back room before <laughs> next to a screen print washout. Um yeah, so a little a little history, right? Um I basically started at the print shop as an apprentice and was like helping out with editions there. And as I started getting interested in publishing on my own I just kind of took it upon myself to find whatever free space was in the studio and claim it, mm. much like a uh, annoying squatter would do. Yeah. And just like put my stuff there and be like, deal with it. I will deal with it soon, but we're going to do something with it. Yeah. And after the director left, I kind of leapt forward and I was like, hey, I want to start doing these classes here before he left. And he was like, perfect. And so I had an agreement. He pardoned you on his way out. Exactly. Yeah. He gave me like a little gold star or a golden ticket. You're his Chelsea Manning. <laughs> you could be our Pio too if you want. Uh, I'll stay away from both yeah. of them. <laughs> but yeah, so I was really lucky that they let me start this Rizzo thing on in a new expansion that was going to be only for screen printing. Okay. So I had like, I don't even know, maybe like 15 square feet to do this thing. <laughs> I would just roll things out and put them back on the shelf. And it was annoying, but Rizzo classes were very popular when they first started. And so based on the They're not success, so much anymore? They still are, but things, <laughs> things are cooling down a little okay. bit. The bubble is hit. All right. right? All the Rizzo right. bubble yeah. has happened. But. So... Um, I I want to focus in here a little bit, and I, I do just want to say right off the back, right off the bat here that um, print is dead. <laughs> Most definitely. Mm -hmm. um, but you can throw it out. Okay, but for real, what is uh, walk walk me through endless editions? I mean, I'm yeah. pretty familiar with it, but you're in charge of this pretty radical printing label, and you do a lot of different things. You're at different fairs, you're producing work for other artists and stuff, so for somebody who's brand new to Endless Editions, can you walk through just kind of what that project is, uh, maybe a couple of people that you've worked with, like, I know that it started in one form, it's in a different form, like, what's the timeline, and yeah. what are you doing right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's no real succinct way to talk about Endless Editions. We got an hour, baby. <laughs> I don't want to talk about Endless Editions for the whole I don't either, but, you know, you gotta... <laughs> you gotta start somewhere. <laughs> Endless Editions started in 2014, and it was just an idea. We started an exhibition, actually. So our format was... Who's we? Exactly. Great question. Anthony Tino and I started it. And, uh, I don't know, I guess it was a, it was a frustration. I mean... It seems so idyllic and naive now, looking back on it, right? Because we were, it was 2014, we had six years of, like, liberal, uh, 
encouragement, you know, it seemed like everything was just like available, nothing was, uh, nothing was really critical, or nothing was really, uh, it didn't seem crucial at the time. Or right? urgent or something? Yeah, like it didn't... just seemed very luxurious, okay. right? Like things just seemed like in excess at a certain point, right? Um, and uh, especially in the art world, right? It just seemed like what was selling and what was popular then was really just posh and by taste and really uh, extravagant. And I don't know, maybe it was because we get rejected from we got rejected from everything we applied to, <laughs> and maybe it was because nobody gave a shit about what we were Did doing. Do you want to name any names? If we were rejected <laughs> yeah. I mean, now there might be people that we work with. Oh so. yeah, that's cool. I can name a few places that have rejected me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty much everywhere that I worked with, including the Robert Blackburn Production Workshop, <laughs> like, rejected me multiple times, you know? That's cool. So, I think it took me, like, four applications to RBPMW before I actually got in. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think I... How many times did I apply to the Headlands? Mm -hmm. Do you know that residency? It's, oh, like, yeah. north of San Francisco? Yeah. yeah. I think I've applied there five. <laughs> <laughs> I've never gotten even, like, a fucking interview. Yeah. I'm just like, fuck you, I'm moving to New York. But, um, <laughs> no, but, okay, so you guys so, are, but you're feeling this kind of micro-frustration, just out of, like, maybe opportunities aren't presenting themselves, but it didn't feel urgent in the sense of, like, at the time, it wasn't, like, hyper-political no, to start this. It was a little close. bit more like a project, or, yeah. like, a, we want to do something. Yeah, more like activating spaces that don't necessarily get considered as artist-run spaces or gallery spaces or institutional spaces, right? So we were just looking for that point in the plateau where the art world kind of falls off mm -hmm. and seeing where the gaps were between those plateaus to fill them. That was like our main goal. So when we, you know, when I worked at the print shop, I saw contract printing or like fine art editions, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for like real fancy people? Yeah, like, uh, you know, like... Um, mm -hmm. Amina Robinson or Joseph Hart or, you know, these Terry Winters, you know, like yeah. these blue chip artists who are like emerging up like Gallery Plus yeah. artists are, uh, you know, doing prints with us and we're selling them for like 800 bucks a print or a thousand bucks a print. And, you know, the crazy upfront costs of doing that, the crazy way that the print shop operates to make that happen. But it's really weird because Blackburn is a, is a truly unique place in the sense that you have a, a person who's like a complete novice at printing. Robert Blackburn? Uh, the print shop, yeah. Yeah. The man was iconic. Yeah, yeah. The print shop, it was funny to see like really high-end museum jobs being printed in a room aside from people just... Oh, you mean like prints. the audience who come in and use the space? Yeah, the, yeah. the, the community And it's, a, it's open to, open to the anybody who wants to kind of sign up, and it's yeah. pretty affordable, right? Yeah, to, the rates have gone up since 1998. Really? Yeah, same rates from 1998. That's great. So but it's, it's, a, it's a cool space. It's pretty infectious, and it's like neat to think, though, that that sort of stratosphere is going on there, but I'm sure that kind of gives you, as you're talking about those spaces between the plateaus, you're just kind of like, okay, well, what else is happening? Right. Like, if it, what's in between this sort of like... Um, forty-five-year-old, fifty-year-old guy who's just like, you know, what? I kind of want to learn to screen print, and then like a fucking like David Byrne print or something that's <laughs> yeah. being like addition I mean, and like who, clean. Uh, who has been in there? Uh, Lee Ronaldo has been shot a lot lately from Sonic Youth. <laughs> yeah. Is that who that is? I don't like that band, man. I don't fucking like. I'm going on record. And did you see? Were you? <laughs> did you see a couple of years ago when Thurston Moore performed on like, the steps of MoMA PS1, <laughs> yeah. and I was like tweeting it. PS1 reporting him for, like, I wanted to make a noise disturbance complaint. <laughs> I mean, I think 
that was the year where they first did the preview where people like paid to go for the oh, preview. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was just like a madhouse to yeah. get in there. And the minute Thurston Moore was on the steps, like every table was left alone. <laughs> and like every all the vendors were just like alone in uh, their yeah. booth and everybody's outside watching. I, just, I should put also on record though that I understand that Sonic Youth is an important thing. <laughs> like I respect that Sonic Youth exists. I strongly dislike their music. Uh, and, and I strongly dislike them based on uh, an old video of, you know, Nardwar? <laughs> yeah. Did you ever see the Nardwar with Sonic Youth? Did, were you interviewed him? No, I never they're saw like, him. They're picking on him. Aww. They're jerks, man. Aww. Anyways, that but so print shop, you're kind of, you're there, and you were a fellow, or what were you doing? So at the time when I first started there in 2013, like the beginning of 2013 and 2012, I was just an apprentice. So it's interesting that they will, like, take you on and train you, give you uh, additioned prints of whoever you're working with, and you get like hours to come in and use the shop. So it's in exchange. And so a lot of the ideology and systems that Blackburn uses to stay afloat, you know, this kind of idea of exchange and this kind of idea of community, that really played like a foundational base for Endless Editions. We really wanted to be about community and we really wanted to be as low profiting as possible. (laughs) You know, maybe we didn't know it at the time, but we don't, we didn't want it to be like, oh yeah, we made this book and now there's only three left, so they're $5,000 or whatever. We weren't aiming for that. I mean, it's not to say that we haven't done that in certain instances, but that was just to, that was just to really help us start out. So it definitely has changed, as you mentioned, but I was also spending time at Printed Matter. And that's so, where we met, right? That's where we met. Were you working there or volunteering there? What were you doing? I was kind of like You're just hanging out. The wall. <laughs> just fucking hanging out. I was just the annoying one that just showed up for all the events and helped them bartend because it had a lot of bartending experience. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I, I think I was living in Portland, but I did a release or something there, and I think that's where I met you. And then we sort of like realized that both of us had probably seen each other at the book fair before that too, probably. like in the last couple of years, but. Yeah. So you're just like wedging yourself into like every context that you wanted to be in. Literally, I was just like, I'm just going to place myself. (laughs) I know know none of you guys want to be here. I thought you worked there. (laughs) It was very convincing. I was like, PJ's, he's one of the managers. (laughs) I was like, well, there's, was AA still running the show? AA had just left. AA Bronson had just left. So, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I remember going in there and just be like, well, you know, it's like Keith and then uh, PJ and Christina <laughs> and like this is the group of people. I was just like, yeah, he's one of the employees. Yeah, I was I was a nobody there. I was a nobody at Blackburn. Um, but actually, you we invited you to do our first exhibition too at uh, Con Artists. Oh, right when I moved here, right in when the Lori side. Here, you would you, we had met and then like we were doing our inaugural exhibition and Anthony was at the time working at a kind of like an affordable art gallery <coughs> called Recession Art. Mm-hmm. And so he had this idea. Was that in Brooklyn? That was in, uh, that was actually in Manhattan at the time on Clinton Street next oh. to Culture Fix, which uh, no, now is near the Super Chief. Super Chief was doing something over there huh. on that same street. I don't know. Anyways, things changed. The neighborhood's much. changed a lot over there. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Endless Editions, long story short, came from a curatorial background from Anthony, a print and publishing background from me, and neither of us had ever made a book before, before we started Endless Editions. <laughs> so we, the first books we made were with Endless Editions. And then all of a sudden, 
people started recognizing us as like, I don't know, some, something happened at Babs Fair one year where Vice or Hyperallergic wrote us up as one of the seven best zine makers in Brooklyn. And Anthony was living in Queens. We were operating. Yeah, you lived in Jersey, right? I lived right? in Jersey City. <laughs> cool. And we, we were, were operating. I mean, Manhattan. technically, your your books were in Brooklyn. <laughs> was that when it was at Signal or earlier? Yeah, that's when it was okay. at Signal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it the project really took off after a couple of key projects and uh, with Ashley May and Zebdia Keneally. And Zeb. 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 Zeb was our first publisher. Zeb's a uh, for anybody who's listening. Zeb's a very good boy. He's <laughs> a very good boy. Uh, and he performed at our, our book fair. But, I mean, I think uh, to go back to like the tenets of why Endless Edition started, it was because we went to the art book fair and we saw all these independent publishers or artists. Mm-hmm. And they were selling artist books, or at least at Printed Matter. I was looking around, I was seeing all these books, and I was like, these were made in Taiwan. These were made in Estonia. <laughs> like, artists did not make these. Sure, they made the content. Sure, okay. they yeah. designed it. But they're not making the books. And so I saw an opportunity for us to do everything in-house. Yeah. Make it in New York, keep the costs low. But you're just like learning. You didn't, like in school, you weren't doing, like you weren't in like a nerdy printmaking program where you were like hand-binding books or anything? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I, mean, I was. <laughs> I did. Uh, my education was piss shit. Cool. Awful. Right and, on. And, uh, you know, most of the time I learned how to get away with not doing my work pretty much, and uh, working side jobs, learning how to double jobs together to make more money. Wage theft. Wage theft. One of our big sponsors on this podcast. (laughs) I love wage theft. I encourage everybody to participate in wage theft. So you guys just just decided we're going to learn how to make books because you're looking around at these things. And interestingly, though, I think, uh, okay, so that's that's 2014 because that's Mm -hmm. like right after I, I got into New York in 2013, but... We did, uh, you guys had like your launch, and I was at that, and, uh, but in that kind of window of time, it seems like there's been this, in, increasingly before that, a real return to people actually trying these novel, weird forms to put books together. Totally. I mean, there's so many, and there's, um, you know, it's really funny, people are like, there are too many book fairs, and it's just like, what's your fucking case, is that, that's the hill you want to die on? <laughs> too many, like, there's too many artists trying to make twee little things that they can sell for cheap to, like, create micro-communities, like, go fuck yourself, if yeah. that's what makes you angry about the art world. I mean, what makes me angry about the too many art book fairs is that most of them charge table fees, and then you're donating your books that's to true. make your table yes, back, yes. and then who's really taking the money, not the organizers. So you're talking, you're talking about, like, a superstructure problem of, like, oh, the, totally. of the art book Illuminati, not of the... It's not of the culture surrounding it that makes people interested in, yeah, it's in more the like printed the, object. The venues that host these things mm. are like gouging art book fairs. Come on. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, you're going to rent your venue out to a bunch of, like, earnest young people trying to sell their bric-a-brac zines and... Bric-a-brac? Buttons and who knows what they're selling, you know, but... I mean, I, I know what they're selling, but, uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense that, like... No, you I charge people yeah. to have this fair. I mean, it makes sense if you're like a school or something that, that has alternative revenue. You know? No, of course. I mean, there's no there's no ethical consumption under like capitalism. But <laughs> clearly, there are there's situations where it makes sense that it's like okay, this place needs to raise some overhead or something like that. But I, I understand what you're saying that there are certain contexts where it's just kind of like table fee. 
Like, it's like $200. Yeah, game. and people are just trying to make their money back kind of it's thing. It's like, I don't want to go to Boston to pay for $200. You know? like, I don't, <laughs> don't want to go, go to Boston. I don't want to go to Boston for any reason. <laughs> you know? Then Shout like, out to my listeners in Somerville. Go <laughs> <laughs> Tufts, Tufts University, right? Yeah. That's in Somerville? It's not, not, wait, is Tufts in Boston? Tufts is in Boston. I don't know. There's a million fucking colleges in Boston. And they it's all very shitty school colors. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Car- what is Harvard? The Crimson, Crimson Tide. Yeah. That might be the best one. You think so? Do they have sports teams? Oh, yeah. I thought they were just a bunch of brainiacs yeah, out there. Yeah, chess, chess club. Chess club? <laughs> fuck you. Bobby Fisher out there. My friend, uh, my friend John, he went to Harvard Law, which is kind of actually pretty boss. But you I, remember Matt Damon went in that movie? Uh, Matt Damon, the whole. did you see the movie? He didn't go to college. <laughs> oh, that was shit, the whole fucking right. point. He, he, was wasn't Andrew, a, right? he wasn't a college he student. He ate a lot of apples or that something. Was his, that was the rub, my dude. That was the, <laughs> that was the rub. <laughs> Um, uh, but that's crazy. So endless is like just. I mean, well, it was January, and I'm sure you guys were plotting before that. But um, you're looking at like under four years. Yeah, right. And, and how many titles? I just counted because we just did inventory after we moved. But I think we did like seventy-eight different books, and you know, a couple dozen prints. Um, that doesn't include all the workshops and the books that we did in collaboration or client work. Or yeah. Wow. That's a lot that's a lot of shit. I moved a lot of shit. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. It was like I would not be surprised if it was a literal ton of stuff that I moved. Books are fucking heavy. It's stupid. Dude, paper is heavy. It's really dumb. It gets like, Oh man. You I forget that you're moving a tree. Yeah, it's really stupid. It's like stupid. I'm moving a tree right yeah. now. It's no. like a big stocky tree. It's sort of like a tree, but if a tree were like a, um, what is that pastry, like a baklava? You know, it's, like thin, it's like layered. Very thin layer, like a croissant. <laughs> <laughs> like a croissant tree. Um, so the main method that y'all use to print or that you're using for Endless is, is it primarily Resograph? And what is, what I, I know what it is kind of because a bunch of people use it, but I don't really know what it is. I mean, it's yeah, like a photocopier, but it's in color. We got pigeonholed into it for sure. Um, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense in a way. In other ways, it doesn't make a lot of sense. A lot of people want Rezo because they like the aesthetic. It looks like digital handmade, mm-hmm. like screen printing, but digital. Because it's kind of matte. Like it's it looks of, sort of matte. It's kind of matte. The inks are translucent, so like they very much blend together. So you can get a lot of like nice color color overlays. It's not opaque, but it never dries and it stays super greasy. And, and it's, you know, I don't think it's archival, but maybe it is. What's its original function? Is it posters or? Uh, Rezo machines are marketed to like nonprofits, schools, hospitals. I mean, the majority of people that use it are printing like two thousand copies a week. You know, if not more. Like just some huge volume of like, here's our program or bulletin for this kind of thing. Okay. Here's our church bulletin. So it doesn't doesn't matter if it smudges or whatever, but you're telling me my endless books, like if I thumb them too hard, I'm going to move the ink around? Oh, yeah, totally. What the fuck? 100%. 100%. That's why we try to keep it cheap. That's why we try to keep it cheap. It's not not forever, you know? But it it does look good, you know? Like it looks good. It's, It's aesthetically, for graphic designers, it's really good. It's fast. And use color. I mean, that's the that's the thing that kind of pops about the endless stuff is that it's like the color factor is very different. Yeah, we're making it crazy. But we also, so none, neither of us are trained in design. Neither of us are really trained in anything. In fact, Anthony... Would you say, though, that design has become your passion? 
Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I don't even know what I'm passionate about anymore. But maybe that's just because I just moved and I have, I'm like still very tra- traumatized yeah. about by it or whatever. Yeah. But um, no, we use a risograph. It's a digital stencil duplicator. It's definitely a small world that uses it. I joked that you know I think the bubble is upon us, and I do think that the bubble has happened. You know, Riza was so so popular the last couple of years, and now. Um, you know, I get hit up, you know, I did a job for like Nike and they were like, what is that? I did like a Rizzo print shop for Nike. But what is, what is Nike? Yeah. <laughs> the corporation. Oh, the sneakers. The sneakers. Yeah. I've always been more of an Adidas dude. <laughs> um, Adidas hit us up too. Really? And actually a colleague of mine did a Rizzo workshop, like a zine making workshop for Adidas. Like employees? <laughs> like structured fund for Adidas no, employees? I, I think it was more like an advert thing. Oh, okay. Like a, like a community Did some thing. of it have to do with, though, because you, uh, you were telling me before that you were considering driving to uh, some weird part of Virginia because it is, do you think part of the boom of that coming back in addition to, people have always photocopied zines and things oh. like that, but this interest in Rezo, did it also have to do with the ubiquity of those machines just kind of sitting places where... Definitely you could actually get it pretty cheap, or is it now a fetish that you can't? It's totally being resold. Secondary market is like through the roof. Really? People are trying to. Rezo got gentrified. Rezo got gentrified <laughs> AF, dude. It's it's whack. It's so whack. But I mean, it makes sense. I uh, I think. Uh, do you know Tor- Toro y Moi? Uh, no. But <laughs> no, good. Well, I don't. Well, uh, LA Biz Band, and their whole design is based off of Rizzo printing. You know? Like it's their like, sound? No, their oh. whole, like, packaging design and oh, all okay. coverage yeah, and yeah. billboards and advertisements. I mean, I think corporations are trying to use that aesthetic more. Sure. Well, those fucking, they, I mean, they do fake, vert. well, it, maybe they're trying to approximate a misregistered screen print or something, but yeah, like much. all of the seamless ads are oh, that yeah. now, right? Like yeah. the kind of, I like, I can see the colors don't line up exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's like the iron, I think the funny thing though, I do kind of like that populist, um, co-optation of aesthetics like that though, because it makes me as a person who trained in formal printmaking, it drives me insane, which means that it must be funny. Like, you know, wedding <laughs> invitations where a letterpress and they just punch the shit out of the oh, paper yeah. and it's so deep and you would and get your, you would get your hand slapped in the print <laughs> studio in undergrad totally. if you pressed into the paper. They'd be like, you kiss, the drum goes over and you kiss, kiss the type. Kiss, kiss. kiss the type just a little bit. And if it punched through the back, they would just be like, you're a shitty printmaker and I don't know what you're doing here. Yeah, totally. Um... But I guess the misregistered thing. Let's blame Andy Warhol for that. Yeah, fuck him. <laughs> it's cool to say he's dead. Yeah. He also is kind of awful. Yeah, I don't really care. I <laughs> literally, unless the foundation is interested in any kind of <laughs> physical support. Yeah, Andy Warhol then, Foundation. I'll yeah, take your money, but sure, but fuck Andy Warhol. Yeah, but the artist, formerly known before he died, <laughs> is Andy Warhol. <laughs> did you see uh yeah can we like delete that out <laughs> did you see uh the you know the the movie julian schnabel made about basquiat you ever see that no okay well david bowie plays andy warhol oh my God. and there's this one part where he's i don't even remember what it is this is a stupid story but at one point he's like we should go to pittsburgh i'm kind of from there <laughs> <laughs> just like that's maybe i'm never i feel like i can't go to pittsburgh because that infuriated me so much oh my God. um so, 
Outside of Endless Edition, <clears throat> though, what about PJ the Man? Like, where did you grow up? That's a great question. Um, no, it's not. It's a pretty bad question, but a, I actually do want to. I realize that I've known you for four fucking years, and I've never asked you where you grew up. Yeah. Um, well, outside of Endless Editions, you know, there's not much of a life. Um, but I was born in Manhattan. My parents are immigrants. And uh, in the mid-90s, my dad bought a place in Schenectady, New York. Oh, cool. So I went to high school up there. Really? High school and middle school. Um, and... For the most part, I would say I grew up up there, you know. Um, my mom still lived in Queens, so I would be back. It was amazing. I had the best childhood. I never had to go to school, really. It was amazing. Like, I think I missed the most school possible while still being able to graduate. Huh. And, uh, yeah, because I would come down to the city, and uh, my parents were really religious. Pious, pious people, God-fearing people. Any particular religion, or just like God uh, in general? Yeah, Catholic, oh. some sort of Syrian Orthodox. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't. Well, I assume colonialism. Yeah, but yeah, colonialism yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, my dad is from. It's really funny. My mom doesn't have a birth certificate. Uh-huh. Uh I hope nobody in the government is listening to this. Well, we didn't say her name, so yeah, it doesn't great, matter. Perfect. But she doesn't actually know when she was born. No shit! Wow. So she actually doesn't even know where she where she was born. Huh. So. And there's, there's like big question marks around my grandfather on the, my mother's side. My grandfather on my father's side was a reputable rubber uh, plantation owner. Really? In southern India. And uh, he sent my dad to like boarding school somewhere on an island called Brunei, or at least that's what I think. Um, Anyways, they're God-fearing people, and so they don't really understand what it's like to communicate, right? Okay. So they don't communicate. Anytime you ask them a question, they're like, why do you need to know? There's no purpose. <laughs> you know, there's no, just go to church, go home, go to oh, bed. And I kind of wish I, I sort of envy that stoicism <laughs> to be able to just, if I could. List, that, that was it, you know? Yeah. Like anything bad yeah. happens, you pray about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's um, a, that's a, I think that's a lot of people, especially Catholics, experience. I uh, I've mentioned this before on the pod, but I was raised Irish Catholic, which means that it's not, we're not actually Catholic. It's yeah. just like, shut the fuck up and go to church on Sunday, yeah, and then yeah. everything else and then is just like, hold a, it inside. yeah, and then drink it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, my parents don't drink, so it was like. Oh, uh, man. See, that's the only fun thing about being Catholic, <laughs> is that you're allowed, I mean, Catholicism lets you sin the fuck up. Yeah. And then you and can, then just pray. Yeah, and uh, like, apologize. It's literally fine. It's amazing. It's totally cool. It's why the city of Boston exists. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's the only good thing. About Boston. <laughs> but my dad is a funny guy. He, from, like, even from a very young age, he encouraged me to read really radical writings like Being in Nothingness. Really? Imagine being an 11-year-old yeah, yeah, yeah. boy wow. trying to read Being in Nothingness. Or, you know, uh, he was reading Heidegger. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is it? Something about time. I can't remember of it. I can't remember the title of it. But, but I mean, I'm, reading, I'm like 11 years old like reading Heidegger. And I'm just like... What the fuck is the Gestaltwerk? You know, like, I'm just like, what the fuck are these words? And so, my dad was really like, uh, and he's really into Ken Wilber and spiritual integration. So while he has like really Catholic roots, he's really interested in a lot of different things. And in fact, I think a lot of where I get my like, I just want to be alone and not be with anybody, and I'd rather just be working in the studio by myself, is from my dad because he'd rather just be home reading 
Yeah. You know, I'm not a good reader. I, I'm awful at reading and writing. So he kept those skills. But, uh, you know, I think the kind of like work ethic, like I always want to be busy, comes from him. And then my mom is the more emotional and uh, reactionary. But she's very cunning. You know, she can like, she'll <laughs> size you up. You know, yeah. she's not good at Eng- She's not good at speaking English. And, um, doesn't She's very like, paranoid. Doesn't sound like she needs to be there. She'll no, she, she'll look at you it. and she'll yeah. just be like, you're a piece, you're a piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> I had some friends growing up whose moms were like that, and I was just like, fuck, this lady knows. She knows like, I, I walked in here and she knows I'm a little shit. Like, <laughs> I'm, a bad, I'm a bad kid who's who's being very articulate and polite, but I'm like a little shitty Eddie Haskell. Yeah, yeah. They she, could. That was scary when you encountered a parent who could, uh, who could deduce that. Because I also had some friends whose parents were like real bad. At understanding which one of their friends were just like awful, just like, <laughs> like parents who were maybe desperately trying to still be cool. Right. And so I would have a friend, and we would have a mutual friend who is like cool, but he was like a shithead, right? But my friend's parents would like really like him, even though he would constantly be getting their son into like insane amounts of trouble, and they'd be upset with their son. And I was like, it's this little, it's this rich kid who's a fucking asshole, but he's got a haircut, so you like yeah, him. Yeah. I mean, I was like the opposite. My parents were always like, this guy's a bad influence on you. And I'm like, yeah. well, I'm pretty sure I'm the bad influence on that. <laughs> but it was also awful because, uh, you know, they were arranged marriage. Oh, so whoa. they had actually met each other twice. Okay. First was in a lineup. So a lineup? They, like you know, a... Like a like my dad... Oh, he's choosing from a lineup. I didn't know if it was both sides, like gender equality sides, kind of like... Both sides line up. Oh, yeah, okay. Both sides yeah. line up. So my dad, you know... The ladies line up, the guys go in, they rate them, and then the guys go line up, the ladies come in. But actually, it was more the grandparents. Huh. Um, my grandparents, their parents, and their grandparents, they'd be like, uh, you know, this lady, her fingers are weird. Whoa. Her nails aren't very Wait, long. where was this? Uh, this would be in India. In India, yeah. okay. This was in southern India at the time. But both of them were, like, all over the place, you know? And, like... My dad has five siblings, or four, four siblings, there's five of them, and my mom has six siblings, so six of them. Yeah. And so, big families, arranged marriage, but I mean, this is like, what, the 60s? Yeah. Going into the 70s, and shit, man. I mean, if I were them, I would want to squat up with the most wealthy people, too, you know? Like, this is all about, like, families, longevity, like, yeah. security. This isn't about what the kids want, you know? This isn't about what people want. It's about like securing your place in the world and making sure it never escapes, especially in India, yeah. you know, where there's so many people, so many problems, um, so much corruption, as with most places that are overpopulated. Um, but yeah, so they, I, I always ask them this, I'm like, why did you guys come here? Yeah. Like, what was the point in coming to America? Couldn't you guys tell that, like, India was about to, like, blow up to this crazy thing? And, you know, now I bet they wish they had stayed because all their kids live like Americans, you know? Like, yeah. All their kids, like, totally hated growing up and going to church and being part of this small, weird community. They wanted to be the kids, you know? I wanted to be the kid that, you know, had Adidas Sambas and played soccer. And soccer was cool with them, but, you know... It was very uh, difficult dealing with, like, not only not being there full-time, you know, not, not being upstate or in the city full-time, but also 
you know, the communities were very separate. Yeah. And like my, my high school I graduated from, I was like maybe one of like seven colored people. Col- oh, yeah, colored yeah, yeah, people. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you I know, would like, my homies were like wands out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like, like all my homies were like the the you know Quasi Quay. Yeah. You know, like shout out to Quasi Quay if you're out there, buddy. You're the best. <laughs> but like, all my homies were like the weirdos. We were into like super obscure things, and you know, listening to grunge music. I remember in the fifth grade when I first moved up to upstate New York, there was like a karaoke day in elementary school. Whoa! And it was like you know everybody's doing like. 98 Degrees or TLC and they got like a dance thing and I just got up with like I went and got a shitty cardigan mm-hmm. and a stringless guitar. You did Weezer. I did Kurt Cobain. Okay. Oh, cardigan. Right. Yeah. I uh, thought, oh, a shitty cardigan. A shitty okay. Cardigan. I thought like a little preppier, but right, yep. Right, right. No, no, was he sh- dead at that point? Uh, Wait. This was 1994. Wait. Okay. Yeah. So it was when he we're, died. We're about the same age, right? Uh, I feel like... I'm like maybe a couple years younger than you. Okay, yeah, but because I was in, I was in, uh, yeah, he died when I was in like middle school or something. Yeah, he died when I was in junior high, maybe. I I might have been in seventh grade or something. Yeah, I was in the fifth. Because I remember, kid, my hometown was obsessed with him. Um, (laughs) But oh man, this is—I'm not going to say his name. But he became a semi-famous musician later. Incredible guitar player from my high school. Definitely an outcast, Marilyn Manson kid. I always liked him. I thought he was really cool. But he became sort of a famous musician in Nashville and was on like a pretty big talent, like America's something show or whatever. But I remember when Kirk, he loved Nirvana. And when Kirk Cobain died, I might be like sort of inventing part of this in my brain. There might have been rumors at the school. But he put a stake in his front yard with a cardigan on it. And like set it aflame and energy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was like half a cheek to Kirk Cobain. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I had just seen his lot in like a MTV Unplugged set. Yeah. And so I did Lake of Fire oh. acoustic. Is that a Meat Puppet song? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, and so this I didn't even know that. This one's fine. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was like, this is so boring. Why are you doing this? And I was like, literally, this is what he did in yeah, the music yeah. video. I was, yeah. I was like, I thought this is what karaoke was. So, big cultural disconnects. Yeah. And also, just like, totally in my own world, you know? I was like... Wait, so were your folks still together? Oh, yeah. Just living in different places because of totally. work, or...? I mean, it wasn't a true love marriage, you know? Right. Okay. So, like, they didn't see it as, like... We need to spend time together. Okay. You know, they were they saw it as like this is how it functions. Yeah. And the kids need to go to school. Hmm. And that's why we came to America. So they could go to school, go to college, make money, support us, you know? And look what you fucking did. I fucked up. <laughs> I need six hundred dollars to make coloring books. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so after uh you you went to so you finished up uh like, was high school okay? High school was whatever. Was I mean, fine. I was an athlete at the time, so it was like, I was trying, I mean. What did you play? I didn't play anything. I ran athletics. You? I was a runner. Oh, a runner. I was a runner. Okay. I mean. The sport with uh, no point. No points. <laughs> Until they gave it. They made points for this. Oh, I said no point. Oh, like, yeah. I meant in, in an existential sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Greeks got it. Were right. you running long distance, short distance? Yeah, Every, middle distance. Middle eight, distance. Eight hundred meters to uh, two miles. Okay. okay. What can? What's your best mile you ever did? Fast. How fast? I don't want to say it's embarrassing now because I smoke so much and I got a little belly now. Is it like under five? Oh, way under. Five. Really? Way under. Five. What are we talking about? Come on. 
I mean, the equivalent exchange of the mile, it was a 1500 meter race, would be four minutes and nine seconds. Jesus Christ. It was fast. That is pretty fast. It was fast. In high school in soccer, we had to run three miles in 21 minutes, the oh, whole yeah. team, or uh, we can, we'd have to do it again. We had this fucking... <laughs> Piece this, of shit goalie? This, yes! <laughs> yes! We had a... Piece of shit goalie. We had these two twins, man. These two twins, they were both just a little thick. You know, and they couldn't... They could they block the ball Great really keepers. Yeah, great, great keepers. Could not fucking oh. run. And all of us, you know, we tried to argue, like, there's no point to them having to demonstrate <laughs> like, the ability. Like, they to, they, to run? I know they're like, in a soccer game, you run four miles, and it's like, the goalie doesn't. <laughs> the goalie walks. No, maybe. the goalie doesn't <laughs> run at all. But like, it's about solidarity, teamwork. And but, you're like, shut the but, fuck up. But running's pretty solid. I mean, that kind of makes sense that before you are saying this kind of thing that maybe you subconsciously took from your dad of this work ethic or being in the studio alone, and like that's what running is. Oh, yeah, totally. It's very much... So you can uh, be with a whole bunch of people, but you're still alone in this thing. Yeah. I think I really liked it for that. I mean, I was pretty into it. Did you get all zenned out, the runner's high thing? Like the... You know what? Everybody talks about the runner's high. I never gave it... I never uh, even know if I understood it. Maybe now if I were running, I, I think think it's a distance thing, right? It's know. after a certain... I don't think you get it in a burst or even I in a couple miles. I never felt good while I was running. I hate running. Running sucked. I could go run a mile in probably like eight minutes or less <laughs> right now, which is like not great, but better than most Americans, totally. but I would hate it. It's not good. I mean, there was nothing better than uh, winning. Yeah. One, one nice thing about it was like winning, but it was the best part for me was like winning on a team. Yeah. And it was like, you know, everybody had their part in the place, especially when I was like 17. Shit, man. I mean, like, I spent most of my uh, younger years not having many friends and not having, like, really any solid contacts, not even with, like, my family. So, like, being a part of a team and, like, feeling valued, it was, like, cool to, like, and then, like, feeling like I was, like, a leader of some sort, mm -hmm. you know. But you got to play your, you were part of a team, but you got to play your own role because nobody can take that away from you. Like, no. your actual running thing, like, that's... That was what and I did. And I also went to, like, a shitty school for running, you know. Like, we weren't, like, known for our athletics. We, like, you know, it was, like, us. And uh, it was, like, me and a couple other guys. Like, we definitely, like, elevated this high school track team. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a big story. It was, like, a big to-do. You in the paper and shit? Yeah. Yeah, I got in the I paper mean, a couple times in high school. That felt pretty good. I mean, I, I, I hate, I don't want to say which high school that I went to. Because That's fine. it fucking sucked there. Okay. And, you know, it was really, uh, and it was only in hindsight that I realized this, but, like, you know, like, this community really was built around General Electric, and most of the people there just sent their kids to go to a good school so that they could go to college. It, it was, like, the same thing, right? Like, they just wanted like minds to meet and breed so that they had, you know, stability. You was know? it not, it wasn't a public school? It was, like it a, was a public school, oh. but it was, like, a really, really exclusive. It was sort of geographically engineered Kind of, yeah. Totally. Yep. 100%. Okay, got you. 100%. So, I mean, like... Education you know, gerrymandering. Exactly. <laughs> but, like, legacy families. You yeah, know, yeah. Families oh, that have grown gross. through this school district, like, <laughs> generations. And then that, that influenced, like, other Could things. Could you imagine like, a point of pride being that, like, three generations of your family went oh. to the same high school? Like, who gives a shit? Go somewhere. And it Try mattered. something like, out. It, like, mattered to them. 
so like it was like a point of like pride to them. I mean, yeah. people from high school who I went to high school would still like send me pictures of like going into the high school gymnasium and like taking a picture of the banner on the in the gym wall, being like New York State champions, and like my name's on there. Unironically, and I, I, I literally don't give a shit. No, I was a high school champion, but like to them it matters. They like okay. they like care. That's pretty heavy. And I was like, I don't like that meant nothing to me. I went back to my high school a couple summers ago. Claire and I were in uh, Traverse City. And I was like, you know, just driving around, just being like, got to show you the whole town. And I was like, let's drive up to my high school. And we were driving around like the loop around the high school. And I was like, why are the doors to the gym open? And there's like a basketball tournament going on or something like a summer tournament of some kind. But all the doors to the school were just completely open. So we just like walked in and we're walking around and stuff. And it was, uh, it didn't, yeah, there wasn't any point where I was just like, you know, when I was playing soccer, the only thing that I could remember, the only thing that I could remember was in 10th grade, uh, we had this giant cafeteria. My high school was pretty big for Michigan. It was like 1,500 kids in, That's pretty th- big. in three grades. That's like Because ninth grade was in middle school. So oh, it was shit. 10th through 12th. And at one of the lunches, like last day of the school year, some kid just like threw one of those, you know, those uh, little cardboard sort of tray boat things that they have that food oh, yeah. comes in, like yeah, yeah. popcorn comes in or whatever. Some kid had nachos and that, and he just like, he just hucked it up in the air, right? And this thing sails, and it's in slow-mo, and before the thing even hit the ground, the sky was just filled with food. It was like this, (laughs) it was the coolest thing I've ever experienced in my life. It was a a food fight of like a thousand kids just throwing food, and teachers were like slipping. Kids were tipping tables over and hiding behind it. Like it was fucking nom. Amazing. And just like chucking milk cartons. It was insane. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen. And that was the only thing I wanted to relay to Claire when we were in the high school. So I was like, one time, <laughs> this is the proudest moment of my high school career. Was like, I got hit in the thing with a ramekin of ranch. It was incredible, <laughs> you know, like, and a pizza hit me or whatever. But um, no. But when you were, t- so you went to, where did you go to school? You went to college afterwards? I went to college. I went to college for running. Um, for running? Yeah, it was weird. I mean, I think you're my first scholarship person on, the, or like, or college athlete. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it's fucked up because like I really didn't give a shit. Like I, I, when I was like sixteen, I wanted to be like an Olympic athlete, right? Yeah. Like I had my set, sights on. I was like, I'm gonna be a fucking Olympic athlete. Here's my trajectory, and like lists of colleges that I wanted to go to to train with. I had like lists. I had like a uh, you know target SAT score. I had like you know all this planning that meant nothing, but ultimately it came down to like girls, right? Like. I really just wanted to get laid, and you're working on that. Oh, I was working still diligently. <laughs> currently, uh, I'm fine. Okay, I just realized yesterday that I had sex in the '90s. <laughs> so did I. Isn't that insane? It's insane. During the Clinton administration. Oh my God! Holy shit! Pretty fucked up, huh? It's so fucked up. It's 2017. That's three. There's been three uh, decade I mean, literally windows. Literally, people from the 90s are starting college now. Yeah. 99. Well, it's 99. not. Yeah, we don't need to talk. Yeah, we about don't. That, need but um, you could have conceived one of those. That, oh, that would have been insane, man. That's fucked up. If I had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It might be a beautiful thing. It might have been a beautiful. But uh, did you you ultimately chose a college because of... Uh, so my high school girlfriend at the time took a trip to U of R, University of Richmond, and then I got invited to go. And I thought she was going to go. But we were kind of discussing it, but not really. And then she took an offer at Columbia because it was better here in the city. And Columbia didn't want me. Uh, my grades just weren't 
good enough because I didn't go to school enough to yeah. get good grades, you know? I just had, like, good enough grades. So you are offered me a very lovely kind of under-the-table package, and so I went. What the fuck does that mean? Uh, it wasn't, like, a full-on scholarship. It was, like, a... And they had, like, these things called... They're going to Venmo you? Yeah, they, like, Venmo you. <laughs> Essentially. Essentially, they, like, sent me a check. They sent me a check that paid for my tuition. I would have been like, thanks, y'all. I'm not going to college. That's what I... I you know, my sophomore, after my freshman year, I actually thought about this because they, like, were legally obligated to give it to me for four years. Wow. So I could have just, like, pocketed that cash. And so, like, U of R didn't cost me much. Wait, this is in Richmond, Virginia? Richmond, Virginia. Oh. So it was totally, like, a scumbag kind of move that uh, the coach... Pulled. I mean, like, he was a good guy, but he was just a West Virginia hard-ass Olympic athlete. And, uh, yeah, we, my high school girlfriend and I broke up in, like, four months. Mm-hmm. Like five months, maybe. And, uh, you know, some more bullshit happened. But, again, it was, I, was, I found myself in a situation where I was at a school that didn't feel like it was diverse, it didn't feel like New York City, you know? And so yeah. I spent all this time in New York City, and I'm, I was, like, used to going into places and going around places where everybody was around. Sure, and not feeling, like, record scratch every time you walk into a room. Like, Fuck, okay, yeah. and... Uh, or, like, when I said something, like, everybody went silent, uh-huh. you know? And so it was kind of weird. But also I went to this high school that was, like, really white and, and also had this very same kind of affinity everybody in my high school kind of thought I was a crazy guy and they, they called me annoying and uh, you know eccentric because I was yeah you mean for good reason I was loud and I was crazy and, <laughs> and I said crazy shit and I did crazy shit and I was vocal about it and I wrote in school newspaper about my opinions whether they'd be right or wrong and you know I was listening to like you were posting dude I was posting you, you were Posting before there was a forum. Like, exactly. they are all doing that now, I'm yeah, sure. They're all doing yeah, that now. Yeah. But I was one of the first kids to wear, like, massive over-ear headphones uh-huh. listening to DJ Tiesto as loud <laughs> as he could. Like, 16 years old when everybody's listening to, like, Fubistank <laughs> and the brand new. I'm just, like, trancing out hard. Just, like, and now all these motherfuckers are listening to EDM and going to fucking Governor's Island to yeah. eat ecstasy. And I'm just like, fuck you guys. You guys don't even know what's good. But, um, yeah, college was, college sucked as well. Um, I didn't learn shit there, but I did d- develop some good relationships. What were you going to school for? So that's the point, right? I went to school to run, and then after my freshman year, I was like, I got, like, kicked off the team for smoking a cigarette, and... I feel like that shouldn't be, you shouldn't be kicked off. It should be like, should be like this guy's still, he's fucking smoking cigarettes <laughs> and running. Like, that's a... Running fast, dude. Like, you should be... Praised. Yeah. That's hard. So I was like a... I smoking was, a cigarette. Would you get caught? I got. I was at a dance and some lacrosse girl saw me smoking a cigarette and she told her coach and her coach felt it was like her obligation to tell my coach. What the fuck did the girl tell you for? I don't know. Probably. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, sad. it wasn't like it wasn't like cigarettes was the worst thing I was doing then. That, I, I well, I understand. But in what... I mean, you know, I can empathize with a kid who told on you because they're sort of in a weird position. They're kind of like, oh, God, I saw something. I got to say something. But it's like, 
who's the fucking lacrosse coach who went and talked to the other coach and was like, hi, an adult smoked a cigarette? <laughs> you were over 18, right? I was over 18 for sure. In Virginia? In Virginia, for Everyone God's smokes in Virginia. I remember I went out one night That's with the... my buddies. We went candlestick bowling. I drank like four pitchers of beer and smoked an entire pack of cigarettes. The next day, I went and ran a race. <laughs> I ran like a nine-minute, 20-second, two-mile. And I was like, what the fuck is this shit? You know? Like, I was like, what is this shit? You know? So at that point, I just, like, didn't give a shit. And so, like, I was, like, I was so deep into this education. I was two and a half years into it. And I'm, uh-huh. like, should I drop out? And I was, like. Did you have a major? What were you, like, I communications? Have, I was a, no. <laughs> <laughs> philosophy. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I finished. Sounds my, like you were primed, though, with your pops yeah. to be looking at that. Yeah. yeah, totally. I was, like, I had a leg up. You know, I had already read a lot of the books that we had done. Not that I understood them, but I'd read them, right? Yeah. So I was familiar with passages. I remembered things. I got really into, like, uh, ethics. That was, like, what I studied mostly. Um, and so one of my professors from uh, undergrad, I still keep in touch with. She was, like, my first professor. She was my philosophy, like, mentor or whatever. So I still keep in touch with her. But then I, like, realized in that time, you know, I was also I had also taken enough studio art classes uh-huh. you know we're just doing that for shits you're like this will be easy it's so easy see I did the inverse I used to take kinesiology classes in college because <laughs> I was like man fuck it I'm taking fucking gym I took billiards and bowling and like a bunch of other bullshit like classes in the sports building because I was an art major <laughs> yeah. and you're doing the, you're doing the opposite I like it opposite. Yeah. it probably feels exactly like that Yeah. You imagine, if you had a head on your shoulders like what if you went back now and you could be in like any interdisciplinary class in undergrad, like I would literally bring a staple gun in and like staple a fucking ego waffle to the wall and sit down and be like, "Do you guys want to talk about it?" <laughs> and just like talk circuit, like, and your teacher would be like, "This is very." I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to do that at U of R because the staff was so small and they were all just like professional artists, so they were just riding their careers. Yeah, you know? they weren't like challenging anybody. They weren't asking anybody like difficult questions. Yeah. There was like nothing difficult about it. This was like this Well they don't want happened. you they don't want you to get good because then you're going to take their job later. I, maybe. I don't I don't know. I mean I felt some nurturing from some professors, but most of the time they were all just pretty whack. But the the department at U of R is like very um, posh, right? It's like very like high money and reputable artists who are collected or whatever or have like some sort of career so me being there was like they just didn't understand what the fuck I was there and in fact like I I did get a studio art degree from them Mm -hmm. but um I wasn't invited to do thesis I mean how (laughs) (laughs) so I did thesis one and then at the end of the semester they were like we don't want you back they're like you're fine don't worry they're just like we're just gonna give you this degree Goodbye. Where is a uh, where's U of R in Richmond? It's off Three Chopped Road. It's in West Hampton. Okay. Which cardinal direction is that from the city? It would be west. west. South uh, Like near Bonaire? I don't know. I'm acting like a fucking expert. I lived there for like fourteen weeks. I mean, uh let's see, let's see what the best it was in Henrico County. I know that. Um I don't know what the best way to describe it. Did you ever go to Oregon Hill when you lived there? I mean, I went there for pizza party once. Okay. My buddy Jack Jack Bell lived out there, but yeah, it was pretty ghetto up there. 
It was pretty rough. It's cool. Oregon Hill's a white ghetto, which is really exciting. Yeah, it was, like, really rough. It's a historically white working-class neighborhood in Richmond, which is, like, I think you can read between the lines there. Yeah, and it was, like, actually, like, supremely racist against each other. <laughs> like, it wasn't even, like, they weren't even mad that I was there. Mm-hmm. They were mad at my friend mm-hmm. for being there. Would You know, and he's a white guy. Mm-hmm. So, like, they didn't give a shit that I was there. Maybe they were sort of proto-class conscious. They were... They, they were ahead of the curve. Yeah, they were, they were Bernie bros. Yeah, they were Bernie bros, you know? <laughs> I think so. Um, well, maybe, like... Okay, and then... Um, and you went to... You met Anthony before you started Endless at school because you went to SUNY, and that's where you guys went? Or yeah, where you guys after met, after I sorry. graduated undergrad, which is, like, a loose term, right? Graduating undergrad because I really didn't. They just mailed me my degree. They were so fed up with me. I mean, I was a pain back then. I was totally, I can understand and empathize with everybody there because I was. I was a maniac. I was absolutely out of control. I was totally addicted to drugs. I was totally, uh, you know, irresponsible and a complete dickhead. You know, I was just a complete dickhead. And you weren't running at this point anymore. I mean, I was running, but like not competitively and... You know, it was really irresponsible. I was, like, severely depressed. Yeah. I was... It wasn't a good time in my life. And I don't look back on that time fondly. And I never... That's probably why I don't want to ever go back to Richmond, Virginia. Hey, same. Oh, yeah, I had a... Yeah. I, was on a I was on a two-times-a-week therapy regimen when oh, I lived there, right? Yeah, I mean, that was probably the time where I... Uh, I'm not going to blame it on Richmond, but there is a darkness around that there city. Is, that's there pretty... Is. Uh, I mean, it was weird. It was a weird place. Um, and I got in a lot of trouble there, you know, with the law, so it was, like, just bad memories in general. So when I left, I left with haste, you know? Yeah. I left everything there, pretty much gave two cars away, because I had three cars at the time. Like, how? I don't know. I was a maniac, right? They were all shitty cars, by the way, you know? <laughs> they were all, like, 300,000 miles plus, you yeah. know? Um, and I squatted in D.C. for six months until I realized one day, I was like, I can't keep on doing this. You know? Yeah. I was like... Either I keep on doing this and I just die or I just, like, move on and go home and live with my parents for a little bit and, you know, do the whole 23-year-old thing, you know. So I moved home. I started a job, first job I had out of undergrad, right? Bachelor's degree, philosophy, studio art from the prestigious University of Richmond. I was a janitor. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was a janitor at Janitronics making, like, eight. 50 an hour. Wait, you, I, is that like a, you were a janitor at like a janitor company? Yeah, like a distro company for janitors. <laughs> oh, oh, they dispatched you. Yeah, they dispatched I thought you me. meant that this was, I thought janitronics, I was like, this is a company that does technological innovations and janitorial work. <laughs> no. But you were the custodian I was a light duty company. specialist. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> does that mean like you just maybe throw some sawdust on like vomit or like after no, hours? I, I you were in after hours? I worked in a... I worked in a, a orthopedic surgeon, so bone and joint center. Yeah. So the signs that looked like it said boner joint. Boner joint. <laughs> yeah, boner Bone, joint. Boner joint. So that we was smoke a, that boner joint. That was like pretty chill because I didn't have to do much, and yeah. all the doctors were super rich. So yeah, it's a like, fucking uh, medical place. They should be cleaning it themselves. So I would just like steal mad shit from them. Mm-hmm. I would just steal like hypodermic needles. I would steal like <laughs> and like sell those. I, this was also like upstate New York. So again, yeah, impoverished, shitty community. Um, and so I found ways of making other money, right? 
Um, but again, like, kind of being too much of a shithead still. And eventually I was like, okay, I'm back with my parents. I'm still being a shithead. Not much has changed. Something has to change. And so I was like, I need to get a full-time job or something, you know, like something to give me purpose. And so I worked at this labor union for three years. And actually, since I did this huge move, I found all of, like, the staffing sheets from the labor union, all the contracts I negotiated with this union. And so I'm, like, rummaging through all this stuff. I'm like, this is, like, highly sensitive information. It's just, like, been moved around with me for the last seven years because that's when I left seven years ago (laughs) but eventually at the labor union you know I was I was doing good um I repped almost 2,000 employees yeah wait so you were like advocating on behalf of the people in union like for union people yeah Jesus all these things all these things that you're like experiencing in real time like there are people who in 2017 because of Twitter are just like these things are good (laughs) (laughs) you know like Yes. Yeah. Labor unions. Yeah, labor unions. I mean, I was... Class. I mean, my roommate and I in undergrad were salts at U of R. Places. Like, we were fucking in there, like, trying to organize shops and do all sorts of weird shit. We were very much uh, concerned about labor rights. Um, And, in fact, we got, like, some of the U of R staff unionized. No shit. Yeah, some of the janitors unionized because of, like, uh, some interests that we had with them. But, um, yeah, I worked for this labor union. It was going great. I probably could have, I probably should have stayed, you know, I was doing really good, but uh, to be honest, I don't know why I went back to school for art. Probably just to leave upstate New York. I was like, I was tied down there, you know, like I had this job, I had this car, the company had this car for me, and I didn't really want to be in Clifton Park or Saratoga Springs or Albany. I really wanted to get back to New York, you know, like I, so, you know, uh, what is that? Like almost 15 years later of like leaving New York. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm always trying to come back here. So I started looking at grad schools to go to, but because I had such a shitty undergrad (laughs) transcript, (laughs) you know, like nobody wanted me. So I got accepted into two grad schools, SUNY Albany Mm -hmm. and SUNY New Paltz. And I was like, fuck it, I'll just go to New Paltz because it's better than Albany. Yeah. Didn't give a shit about what or who the program was. And and the program was, to be honest, awful. But at least I got to meet Anthony and do some other weird yeah. shit. We were and, probably a resident of New York. And it's a state yeah. university, right? Super so you cheap. weren't getting fucked. No. Super yeah. cheap. And actually, they were super supportive of every grant application I put in. I think I was 100% application rate. So every application I put in, I got. Wow. So... I don't think I ever got rejected from any single one, which is crazy. But also, again, I was probably the only colored person there. Yeah. Well, fucking, you know. Keeping it up. Yeah, if you got the go fucking for it. That's some (laughs) good. I mean, I I feel like like in in hindsight, I wish I didn't go to New Paltz, but I mean, I know I wouldn't have been allowed anywhere else. So... I did two years there and didn't learn shit. (laughs) They didn't do shit for me. I got some money. And then uh, immediately after, that's when I met Audrey. Yeah. So two great things came out of it. Met Audrey, met Anthony, uh, and then also, you know, some other auxiliary stuff. But but, um, I was like, we need to move back to New York. Yeah. I was like, we got to get back there. I feel like it's just going to make more sense for us. And at this time, I'm still, like, really battling. So we were, like, at the Occupy Wall Street 
protests. I'm still like battling these like labor issues, you know. And I'm still working for political campaigns in New Paltz, you know, like working on political campaigns, printing T-shirts, advocating, lobbying, call uh, call sheets. You know, these are all things that I was used to from the labor union. So I was like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a list of a hundred people. I'll call them in fifteen minutes. No problem. You know, super fast on that stuff. Um. I don't know why. <laughs> like it, it, it still was very confusing to me, and I feel like maybe it's a bit of a cop out. But why did I get into art? I don't know. Don't know why I got into art. It maybe it's like the, but it's like the catch all for all the other shit, right? Like it's the, it's the place that you can kind of, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it's the. I guess it's like the. Yeah, I think the same. Like art's full of shit, right? A lot of the time, the yeah, art world is full of shit. Yeah. Okay, but. The thing is, is that you meet all of these other people through that process, whether it's Audrey or Anthony or like other people that you kind of have in your circle or that you cross paths with or you run into. They can be a fucking runner whose parents are immigrants who didn't do well in school, who blah, 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 who links up with like this person whose interest is in, I don't fucking know, like they like data systems or something. (laughs) This person over here is like a music theory nerd, but like only wants to use like effects pedals or something. In, In any way, it's just like, there's this funny umbrella that as much as we can like shit on it and make fun of it does permit that kind of weird curiosity to all overlap maybe. Yeah. And it's also a a really interesting place to frame environments, right? Like you can, uh, you know, and I think that was also to tie it back to where, why illness editions began is because, you know, like we had these, very alternative ideas and practices to the art world. Yeah. And we were looking to exploit those in a different way, right? So like, you know, hosting events in a street or in a closet or in a different space, you know, utilizing venues, like using the back stairwell in a studio building that's being unoccupied that I can just sneak people into for, sure. for a video screening. And then also, like, be able to communicate with people who aren't in the art world and be like, oh, you know, you have really good ideas and you know nothing about art, but your ideas are maybe more necessary in the art world than the art world is necessary for you. Yeah, it'd be wonderful to talk to more people in the art world who didn't have any fucking idea what art was because it's, it's a lot... It's a lot nicer to talk to somebody who just is like, aesthetically, I think that sucks. And here's some, here's some things that I'm interested in politically and socially. And you're like... Great. That's awesome. Wonderful. Let's talk about that. And instead how can we of, use yeah. these shittiest things to make, that, <laughs> to make that happen? So do you think that, um, you know, kind of to round things out here, we've kind of come this full circle of where you went. And so Endless as a, as a project and as this kind of approach, it seems to me like we sort of clown on a lot the term artistic practice. You know, people <laughs> are like, don't call it my early. You know, but it's like, it's a word that people use. But I, I think endless maybe relates more to literally a praxis and kind of your politics in action even if a lot of the stuff that endless does is you do a lot of very funny stuff you do some sort of irreverent things like that but at the end of the day like the same time i'm seeing you post you know if anybody needs access to printing facilities because they need to do something that is a protest sign or you need to distribute materials or information that's related to causes of social justice Endless will hook you up. Always. And so there's this really interesting thing where Endless is fun and playful and all these things, which is also your personality, but it's really funny until talking to you today. I mean, I've always thought of you as a pretty socially conscious person and always been like, oh yeah, BJ's always doing these things for people, but 
this whole trajectory, it's like this thing lands and like it sits in art because that's a convenient container for mm -hmm. it. But this is a really different thing. And it's almost like a political, it's like a, a praxis of sorts where you are enacting a thing and also just kind of demonstrating to people that like, to, like one of the earliest things that you said where you were just like, going places and like being in them because you wanted to yeah like just you're just taking up space <laughs> yeah. but also demonstrating that that's okay yeah i mean i think uh you know for us especially we realized and us being anthony and i but also myself i, I think we realized like um a lot of the people who are, have power often act not um in accordance with what they believe they act in the best interest of something else you know, they act in the best interest of how the foundation could be run or how to better position themselves uh, to leapfrog to another spot, right? Nobody ever actually acts in the best interest of everybody. Yeah, yeah. There's very little altruism in that sense. Even, so, even in things designed to sort of capitalize on that kind of economy. Totally. Usually the people that you run into, it's just like when people are like, oh, it turns out Joss Whedon is actually like a psychopath and not a good feminist. And it's like, oh, really? Oh, really? Uh, uh. <laughs> but I mean, the same could be said of us, right? Like, we're not truly altruistic because I still need to sell these things. Yeah. Right? Like, I still need to make money to be able to afford these things. And, and But that in itself turns back to this opportunity to, like, help people out. So, I mean, I wanted endless always to be this thing that i started to empower people yeah, yeah. in order for me to leave you know i think that's no i want endless to exist and then you do something me. else yes without no 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 i know? think that's a lot of people's idea with things is to kind of build something and it lives on beyond them so that they don't have to be the de facto administrator forever right like and you and you want and even if it's not called that yeah, but it's like about course. demonstrating a thing and it sounds like I mean, you might have had the inverse experience where maybe it wasn't a bunch of people telling you yes, but maybe it was people in certain scenarios telling you no, or like, no, you can't do your thesis, or like, right. you can't blah, blah, you can't smoke a cigarette, or and so you were like, well, fuck you, I'm going to do this anyways. There's also a, you know, that's the nature side, and then the nurture side, I guess, would be what Endless does, which is like, you have this interesting project, and you'd like to produce it um, in a certain amount, and we can show it to people. Yeah. There's also a generosity and like a nice thing going on in that. And, but I understand what you're saying where at the end you're kind of like, but I don't want to have to feel like I'm the only axis by which these people that I've worked with think that something can go out. Totally. totally. I mean, um, you know, while I want Endless to be like a total uh, support network for people or like, a, um, I don't know what the, the right word for it is, but... Uh, you know, like a utility tool or something. Like we can be a tool for somebody to publish and disseminate their ideas through. And now we're so we're so fortunate. You know, like museums like us. I guess maybe uh, you know they buy some of our stuff. Yeah. Institutions like us. I guess sort of they invite us to do stuff and invite us to publish with them. And so, like uh, an emerging artist who has nothing or is a student or is eager can like come on and publish their titles through us and then somehow get them into the MoMA library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get them into the math library. And even though that doesn't mean anything to me, it means the world's to them. And so like at least we can offer that opportunity. Somehow we've gotten that kind of clout. But I mean, uh, at the end of the day, 
you know, what, what we do and what we publish is mostly up to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just helping them get their product to the shelf. Yeah. You know, I'm not... You're I'm a not, publisher, but you're also... You're, you're a production facility that we're production is facility. sort of curatorial. Sort right? of curatorial, yeah. Like, it's sure. not a... It seems to me like when I encounter an endless thing, I, I don't imagine that PJ is sitting there sending editing notes back to the person. <laughs> Definitely like, not. Do you really... Do you feel like you're using ambivalent correctly here? Definitely like, not. <laughs> no. Definitely, definitely no. Almost no content. You're like, uh, a train, you're like a broadcast station. Pretty much. I mean, it's like you're giving people... Amplification. Yeah, and it's I, it's what's attractive about something like uh, WFMU. Of course. It's, a, it's an amplification network. It's a broadcast network. And while, of course, there's a curatorial eye that, you know, we'd like these people to do these types sure. of things in that window of space... That person can be a psychopath. They can be really generous. They can do all these different things, and that's kind of what uh, I think has always been interesting to me about Endless is that I, in the best way, I've had a hard time describing it to other people. No they're like, when they're like, "What is Endless?" and I'm like, "I can show. I have a bunch of projects. Where I could show you these." And they're like, "Okay, is there like a?" And I, I think though that that's what's fascinating. That leaves it open to that kind of. PJ doesn't have to be the person behind no. it. And even if somebody's like, well, I'd like to take over Endless, then the next day they change it to, like, uh, it ends quickly. Yeah. Or it ends immediately. Like, the name is the opposite or whatever. But oh. I think that that's a... Yeah, that's something that I've always enjoyed. And I hope that anybody's listening to this who maybe is kind of thinking about, do I have permission to take up space or do I have this? The, the, the lack of getting somebody just telling you that or being transparent about their own story like and this is how I did it like I actually fucking did a couple things that were like I didn't follow the rules I got a little bit of trouble in something else but totally but also you know um, I wouldn't say we would not have been successful if we didn't think of think about these spaces right like if yeah we didn't, if we didn't look at these things like you can't just be like oh I want to be a Rezo publisher right you know and then like well, who are you publishing and why? Right. You know, you can't. Or how do you, where, where the fuck do you put it? Where do you put where it? You how, the box are you, how are you building fucking these? books that you can't, that weigh <laughs> so much. Yeah. You have to yeah, find yeah, yeah. it. They weigh a ton. Like production is not distribution. <laughs> no. You have to, yeah. Building an audience is, that's unique. And, and it takes a hustle. And I think Endless is one of the funniest fucking things. Because I'm like, I hang out with you one day. And then all of a sudden there's like an Endless Instagram from Berlin. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, are you there? Like, oh, I know. No. no, I know you have a whole, but you have built a network and a community. That's no, very, yeah. yeah, that is interested in this. And I think that that's. Uh, in an age of social networking, that sort of organic, actual person-to-person person thing. Please, get the fuck <laughs> off the internet. Like, literally, everybody who's on the internet posting links and doing all this shit, get the fuck off the internet. PJ, that's how, that, this is a pod, I know you said earlier that you had a podcast, but that's how people listen, is they can only listen. <laughs> on the internet? Well, they could fuck. Well, they could download it from the internet and later yeah. listen on yeah, a different yeah, device that. or something. Yeah, do Don't that. stream. Yeah, yeah, print this out. <laughs> <laughs> this entire thing out right? <laughs> um, well fuck man uh, we gotta wrap up here we're at time but thank you so much this has been a really great way to learn about Endless about you and a testament to the fact that New York is so fucking superficial that I've known you for four years and this is the first time that we've sort of like shared life stories <laughs> uh, so thank you so much and to everybody who's listening thanks for tuning in uh, and I will see you next week thank you PJ you're welcome Sean <laughs>